It's fall 1945. The war in Europe is over. Latter-day Saints around the world now focus on new kinds of rescue. In Germany, Paul Langenreich, a former genealogical researcher for the German government, searches for records hidden by the Nazis. In Mexico, newly sustained church president George Albert Smith invites the Third Convention back into the fold. These hopeful stories are next in Chapter 31, The Right Track. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Richard E. Turley, Jr., a historian and founder of the Saints Project. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Well, to get us started, Rick, you were involved in starting Saints. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how the project has gone. Has it met your expectations? We wanted the project to be a history set of volumes that people would actually read. Often historians write to each other, and we wanted millions to eventually read this set of books. And initially, we have a readership we know is over a million people. And so I think we've been successful. I don't believe there is a more widely read history of the church than saints. That's amazing. What were some of the hurdles you had to overcome? When we first started the project, I told the team that we were going to do three things. We were going to make certain that, and I drew a Venn diagram on the board to illustrate this. So the first circle, I put an H in and I said, it's got to be historically accurate. And then I put an overlapping circle with an L standing for literarily compelling. And then I drew a third circle that, that intersected with the first two with an A in it standing for audience. And I said, we needed to gear this towards our church audience. And we're going to start in the upper left-hand circle and make sure that we have a good historical outline and a good historical manuscript. Then we're going to hand it to people who have traditionally written for a large audience. And then we're going to test it against the audience that we have and wash it through software to make sure that we're using the right types of words and sentences. Then we're going to come back to the upper left-hand circle, and we're going to do this around and around in a spiral until we get right in the center of this Venn diagram. Well, I think it's done all of those things, and we just appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Well, Rick, you're joining us for a chapter, which obviously got several very interesting stories, but it comes at a very important point in the book. This is the start of the fourth part of the book, but it's also coming in the aftermath of the Second World War. And we're going to now see how members and leaders are responding and reacting to it. Within this, readers are getting to know President George Albert Smith. He shares a personal creed that he lives his life back. So to get us started, let's go ahead and listen to that. I would not seek to force people to live up to my ideals, but rather love them into doing the thing that is right, he wrote. I would not knowingly wound the feeling of any, not even one who may have wronged me, but would seek to do him good and make him my friend. So, Rick, it's through these stories and quotes like this that readers can get a better understanding of previous church leaders. But why is that important? Why should readers be interested in what happened to the church you know, 50, 60, 80 years ago? During my decades of responsibility for the church's history, I came to realize that most societies around the world convey their most important information through stories. Virtually every culture does that. And therefore, in writing Saints, we wanted to create a series of stories. 
And so it's very important that we convey the most important information we have in a story form. If you compare the Old Testament to the New Testament, Leviticus talks about loving your neighbor, and most people don't remember that. But everybody remembers, and a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. They remember the parable of the Good Samaritan because it's the same concept in a story form. Yes, stories are at the heart of saints. It's the story of the church. It's the story of its members. And what are the benefits of the Latter-day Saints understanding and knowing its history better? What could a Latter-day Saint gain from it? First, we know that in order to grow and progress towards the celestial kingdom, we need to obey certain principles, and stories illustrate those principles and help us to remember them. Second, stories help us to remember other things that are important in our lives. They help us to remember family. They help us to remember the importance of serving others. Whereas if we just tried to remember a list of principles, if I I told you that I wanted you to remember a list of 10 things, you might be able to remember three. But if I told you a story that had all 10 things in it, you'd probably remember them. Thank you so much. Well, let's jump now into one of the situations that's happening in this chapter. We'll find out more about the aid that's sent to Europe in chapters following this one. But it's clear from just this very first scene in the chapter that it's not going to be easy. Let's listen to an extract from the story. It struck President Smith that during Elder Pratt's lifetime, the saints were barely surviving. They never could have sent aid across the ocean to thousands of struggling people. But over the past century, the Lord had taught the saints how to be ready for times of distress, and President Smith was happy they could now act quickly. Rick, what had prepared the church to now be in a position to offer aid internationally even? From the early days of the church, church leaders had talked about the importance of preparing for the future and preparing for emergencies. During the Utah War period in the 1850s, church leaders counseled the Latter-day Saints to store grain and other materials for a future time of need. And that focus on preparation continued throughout the Brigham Young period and beyond that. And by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, the Saints had taken that to heart quite well. They had become well-established, particularly in the Rocky Mountain regions, and they had substantial stores that they could use to share with others. This was amazing to me that they were able to offer this help, and it seemed like people were surprised at how ready they were, like you mentioned. And this is definitely one of those timeless principles that we've had now throughout the teachings of the church. And we have to credit the Relief Society for putting into action some things that other people had a hard time doing. If you look at the Relief Society building today, you see wheat on the side of the building. And that's a reflection of what the Relief Society was able to do. And we began volume three with the church being in a perilous financial situation in the 1890s, struggling with the effects of several crises that it had been experiencing. But here we are just 60 years later, and the church is now not even having to necessarily stress about the the financial implications. And they're working with presidents, they're working with world organizations. It's a remarkable transformation in such a short time, really. Part of the acceptance on the part of government officials has to do with the churches being accepted as part of the fabric of the United States of America, where it was founded. During its first few decades, there was a rocky relationship between the church and the government and people of the United States. The Smoot hearings of the early 20th century were kind of turning point. After the Smoot hearings occurred, Latter-day Saints began to be accepted 
as part of the larger fabric. And by being accepted, they didn't have to spend as much of their time trying to survive persecution. So by the middle of the 20th century, much of that persecution had given way to prosperity, and that prosperity made possible sharing. Well, speaking of acceptance, here we find the meeting with Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America. And I think, as we've mentioned, this is a pretty profound transformation of the church's image. How was this accomplished? Well, as you recall, Joseph Smith visited the President of the United States during his lifetime in an effort to get help for the Latter-day Saints. And at that time, there was considerable difficulty in obtaining that, with the President of the United States at the time saying something that got summarized as, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. Now the tables are somewhat reversed in that the saints are going to the President of the United States and offering help to others. Their acceptance as good citizens, their acceptance as prosperous, good people who were able to and had an attitude of helping others made it possible for them to, first of all, get entry in to see the President of the United States and then to work through him to get the supplies that they had to those in need. And now we're jumping to Germany and we meet a man named Paul Lehnheinrich. Rick, will you just tell us a little bit about his significance, his story, and why it's included in Saints? It's significant for a number of reasons. One, he's a local church leader, and therefore in the period after World War II, he's helping the saints get aid, and he's helping them to get organized and helping them to gather after being dispersed by the violence of the war. Second, he has had a longstanding interest in genealogical records. And the real significance for his appearance in Volume 3 is that he helps to gather some genealogical records that had been cached during that time period by those who had taken control of a lot of the cultural and art objects. And so he got access to some of those items and helped a crew of people gather those genealogical records so that they wouldn't be destroyed. Now, I spent 12 years as the managing director of the church's family history department and traveled all over the world and could see uh, genealogical records, many of which were deteriorating. A lot of people think of records as being something that just sits there and never goes away. Actually, most records that existed during this time period were organic, and they deteriorated without proper care. So Paul Lang Heinrich got access to some genealogical records that had been essentially taken into a castle. And he got access to be able to take those records and haul them away, not for the church to own, but for the church to be able to copy. In the period immediately before World War II, the church's genealogical department and the Genealogical Society of Utah, as its uh, worldwide organization was called, began to use microfilm technology, a new technology at the time. And so they were able in the period after World War II in particular during that the next two decades to microfilm a lot of records that had been taken by the Nazis and stashed in places like a castle and in a mine and other locations. And that was miraculous in a way because that then made possible the preservation of these records in microfilm form for use by members of the church in their genealogical work and for use by others. That's incredible. So at this particular time in the post-war period, could you tell us about the state of the church's genealogical efforts? You know, what were some of the things that the church was doing at this time with regards to genealogy? The church founded a genealogical society of Utah during the latter part of the 19th century in the church historian's office. In fact, Franklin D. Richards, the church historian, was the head of that. 
By the time you get to the period in volume three of Saints, Joseph Fielding Smith, the church historian, is also the president of the Genealogical Society of Utah. They have been hand copying records, but now they have this new technology of microfilm. And so they're getting permission from the First Presidency to get the funding necessary to begin to expand microfilm use in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, in Mexico, and so forth. So this technology, which was experimental in 1938 when they began using it, comes into its own in the 1940s and 1950s. And so they're able to do tens of thousands and then eventually hundreds of thousands. And by the time I became the managing director of the Family History Department and eventually president of the Genealogical Society of Utah, the same role Joseph Fielding Smith had, we had over 2 million rolls of microfilm, which we've now converted to digital form. And it's important to notice that those rolls contain many, many images themselves. That's not just 200 million images. This is millions and millions, isn't it? It is. We have both 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film. If you were to say we have an average of 1,000 frames on each roll, then the 2.4 million rolls that are in the Granite Mountain Records Vault would represent 2.4 billion individual images or pages of records. That's a lot of material. When we were researching this story, I was looking at others and there were really amazing experiences. One I can share with you very briefly that we ended up not including, but a man by the name of George Fudge and James Cunningham, they were traveling across the British Isles and after the Second World War, trying to preserve these records using microfilm technology. And there was this great incident where they went to a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. There, they had tracked down the Prophet Joseph Smith's family records. They knew that that was where he'd come from, where his family lived. And they were able to find these records, and they were in a bad state. There was damp everywhere, things were spoiling, and the technology came at the right time. They were in the right place, and they were able to preserve those records before they were ultimately destroyed. And so it's amazing to see the role that technology has played in preserving the history of families, and ultimately the work of the Lord. I think it's not coincidental that the technology revolution, beginning with the Industrial Revolution and continuing into the tech age in which we now live, began with the birth of Joseph Smith, essentially. They're occurring at the same time. And I think the reason for that is that the Lord needed these technologies in order to make possible such things as temple work for people around the world. I know that would be very difficult for us to do family history work without computers. During the dozen years that I served in the family history department, we were able to transform from microfilm technology to digital technology to begin that transformation, which we've now virtually completed. And without computers to store that information, to allow us to sort information, to allow us to stream information around the world, it would be impossible to fulfill the desire to carry out temple work around the world, or even really to easily track members of the church and the work that they're doing for themselves and others. I feel like this theme of genealogical research and record keeping and gathering to take these names to the temple, it has been such a neat theme throughout the book. And it's been something that I've really enjoyed, actually, because it's been kind of neat to see how the techniques and technology has evolved. But then Again, that's another theme that is just so strong today as we focus on gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. It's just been an amazing thing to watch it through these stories and saints. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 135, we read that Joseph Smith has done more for the salvation of people than anyone except for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And people sometimes question that. And I would simply say, if, if you took temple work alone and consider that the system of temples that he established, along with the family history work that he established, now makes it possible for us to do work for those who have predeceased us, and this work will continue to go on throughout the millennial period, the majority of temple work that will ever be done will be as a result of the work that Joseph Smith started. And so certainly that had a great impact on the salvation of humanity. I love that insight. Well, Rick, can you tell us any other stories of preserving records that might be of interest to our readers? Well, I can remember traveling to Europe and going into an old church where birds had gotten in through the windows and there were all of these old, old records in these old leather-covered books. And the records were piled up. Birds had come in. There were bird droppings and feathers all over the records. And we were asked to come in and clean those up and then image those so that they would be accessible to people around the world. I remember another instance going into an old church in Europe. The church was built in 1451, and this big city in which we were had a city archive, and that city archive had built two stories worth of shelving inside this 1451 church. And they began to put these manual records on the shelving, and at one point, they reached the proverbial uh, extra straw on the camel's back, and two stories worth of steel shelving collapsed in a twisted mass of metal and records. And I can remember going into this 1451 church and being asked by the archivist, can you people fix this? And we agreed to do that, to untangle everything, pull the records out, and to image those so that they could be accessible. I can remember being in northeastern China and finding records there that were created by Russian Jews who ended up behind the Chinese border in the town of Harbin in Heilongjiang province. And we were able to negotiate to have those records preserved for future use. So the people who operate our family history department and work through family search around the world have seen many miracles in the preservation of the record of humanity. I find that so inspiring. And I've had my own experiences with this where records from a ward or a library somewhere were about to be thrown out into a skip and, and someone kind of rescues them and it does seem maybe to someone who doesn't have a faith in Christ could, I mean, maybe they could find a way to describe it as a coincidence, but it, there is this spirit about the family history, the spirit of Elijah, that causes people to try and protect and preserve and to bring forth. I mean, saints would not be possible without many of these documents that are preserved, whether it's membership records, whether it's stories, whether it's accounts of families, the story of humanity, the story of the church are intertwined. It's always so touching to hear these accounts where records are preserved and and ultimately these are individuals that can have ordinances performed for them vicariously. It's, It's fascinating. I've gone to professional genealogy conferences and heard people who are not members of our church describe similar stories. They don't know what to call it, And so they come up with their own terms for it. But most of these people who have been engaged in family history over the course of a lifetime have stories that they can tell you of miraculous instances in which records were preserved or information became available to them. Well, let's just talk for a moment then. So Paul Lang Heinrich, I mean, again, this miraculous way they're able to take the records back. What was the significance of these records and their rescue? What did this mean for the church? Well, the records that were sequestered into these storage locations in a mine, in a castle, and other other places, 
they represented, in many cases, the records of individual members of the church's ancestry. So the church at that time was primarily American and European, and those records represented the genealogy of many people in the United States and in Europe. So to be able to rescue those meant rescuing the ancestors and making it possible to do temple work for these people on the other side of the veil. If those records had disappeared, that would have been impossible. So really, there were two rescues. Yes. There was the rescue of their names and then the rescue of their souls through temple ordinances. And what made it particularly fascinating to me is that he had to get permission from the people who were temporarily in in charge of that area in order to make this happen. And it wasn't always easy, but miracles occurred that made it possible for him to gather these records and bring them into Berlin so that they could eventually be microfilmed. I'm still somewhat blown away by the fact that here we have a member of the church, a German Latter-day Saint, who has just gone through one of the most horrific experiences of the 20th century, this total war, this destruction, and he's been trying to look after the saints, but yet still he's following that spirit, you know, he's still following his heart to go out of his way at a time when, frankly, there were probably other things that were very important as well, but he made the time for this and the Lord made it possible. Yes, I think he was looking beyond the moment, which I think is a good lesson for all of us. Sometimes we seem so caught up in the items that are capturing our attention on a given day that we forget about the more important things that we should be focused on. He was able to look beyond the needs of the moment to the future and the needs of the future. Well, Rick, another person that we catch up with in this chapter is George Albert Smith. And, you know, we've followed him throughout the volumes. But can you tell us where he is in this chapter and why it's important for us to understand what he's involved with at this time? Well, George Albert Smith appears in this chapter for a couple of reasons. One, he helps with getting the church's relief supplies to Europe. And second, he helps to heal a breach that occurred in Mexico. And that's of particular interest to me because I have ancestors who were born in Mexico in the Latter-day Saint colonies there. And in fact, Arwell Pierce, the mission president there who works with him, my aunt Irita is his daughter. And so we have Pierce family connections. And I've traveled in my various roles with the church in church history, family history, public affairs and communications. I've traveled around the world and seen how the church has spread around the world. And I will say that initially, particularly during the 19th and the first half of the 20th centuries, we adopted a model that was used by a lot of colonial countries to go into an area. And then we would take missionaries in, and those missionaries would be in charge in a sort of colonial way. The missionaries would be in charge of the local units, not the local people. The missionaries would assume a type of knowledge that they assumed the local people didn't have. And I think one of the great learnings that we had during the middle of the 20th century is that we needed to get rid of that ethnocentrism and trust local people to be the great leaders that they could become. And there are plenty of stories we could tell from the middle of the 20th century in Latin America, including in Mexico and in South America, about how this transition occurs over time. And it probably didn't occur in Mexico as fast as it should have. And as a consequence of that, a group of people broke off to form a series of conventions. And this third convention, as it was called, became a major breach of the church in Mexico. And there was sentiment on the part of some for a while to come down very, very hard on these people, to consider them apostates, and therefore to sort of finalize the breach and kick them out. George Albert Smith, with his love for people, and Arwell Pierce, with his patience, 
were able to work with the people of the Third Convention to have them recognize the First Presidency and church leadership again, and to heal that breach, making it possible for these people to return in full fellowship to the church, and making it possible to have a better transition of leadership from Americans to Mexicans in Mexico. And so I think we have a lot we can learn from this instance of the importance of patience, love, kindness, long-suffering, those principles that are mentioned in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants for priesthood leadership and priesthood administration. And second, we can learn from this the importance of trusting others and becoming a truly global church. I used to say to people when I would give talks that we became an international church in 1833 when we crossed the Canadian border from the United States. But it's taken from 1833 to the present to learn how to be truly global. And one aspect of becoming a truly global church is recognizing everyone around the world as having equal capacity and trusting them to be their own leaders. Thank you for sharing that, Rick. As a European member of the church, when I joined the church, I was taught by British missionaries when I joined the church and didn't really know many Americans. I've met a couple of them. But I can sympathize with the Mexican saints here where they have some very capable leaders and Abel Paez and, and some of the others who are mentioned. These are talented preachers. They are capable of running congregations and groups of congregations. So I suppose for them, although what they did was wrong in terms of rebelling against the authority of the mission, they were really just frustrated because they wanted to move the church forward. They had ultimately this intent to serve the Lord and to further the work. And I don't mean to denigrate the efforts of the many good missionaries who came particularly out of the so-called colonies of the church down there. My father was district president in Mexico City not long after the events that we're describing here, for example. But he later went back as a mission president to Mexico and then as a member of the Mexico South Area Presidency. And he would be the first to say that there are many fine leaders in Mexico and that he was very happy with the transition of leadership from young missionaries to mature Mexican leaders. And today we can look at the Church of Mexico and we see it as a real powerhouse, if I can say, you know, million plus members of the church in Mexico who are entered into the covenant of baptism and to follow our Savior Jesus Christ. It's amazing to see how it's grown there. So here's a little fact for listeners. The church in Mexico today is larger than the entire church was at the time this chapter describes. That's amazing. So certainly there are plenty of leaders, there are temples there, there are stakes there. The Mexican church has matured very, very quickly from the time of the third convention to the present. That's a great little fact. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Rick, why was it important for the church to try and reclaim the saints and not just to cut them off and, and focus on finding new members? Well, I think sometimes in the church, we put a lot of emphasis on finding new people. And we need to recognize that a person saved in the church and not allowed to uh, just float away is just as important as a new person brought into the church. From the very beginning, the church has had an influx and an outflux of members. That's just the nature of organizations generally, and it has been the nature of the church throughout the history of the world. But I think it's extremely important that we focus on retention and not just conversion. And when you have these experienced members of the church, many of whom have sacrificed, and all of whom at this time period virtually were orthodox in their general beliefs, why cut off an entire body of people like this 
uh, why not just reclaim them, which is what, fortunately, George Albert Smith and Arwell Pierce were able to do. And subsequently bring those people back into fellowship and back into the fold to serve and to teach and to learn. No doubt that would have really been welcomed by President Pierce and the many missionaries at the time. And in recent years, we've talked a lot about retention. This is the single greatest act of retention in our history. People who would have gone out that we suddenly kept in the fold. That's incredible. And I just really appreciate you sharing this greater context of why these stories and experiences were included for the lessons that we can learn from them that apply significantly today, just as they did then. We've mentioned Arwell Pierce. He's the mission president. And speaking of lessons can be learned, what can we learn from him and from the way he handled the third convention? Arwell Pierce was a significant figure in healing the breach. And I think he's a fine example to us of the priesthood principles mentioned in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Rather than simply taking a hardline approach and cutting all these people off and treating them as enemies, he treated them with kindness and friendship following very much the attitude that President George Albert Smith exhibited. So when President Smith came down there and the two got together, they could see the value of saving all of these souls by fellowshipping them and bringing them back into activity in the church. And through persuasion and long suffering, they were able to get these people to accept the current leadership of the church as their leaders. And I think it was good for the church as a whole. I think it was good for the members of the Third Convention and their future posterity in the church. And I think for President Pierce, I mean, this is a pretty significant moment. Here we have a president of the church coming to Mexico, touring the mission. This isn't something that really happens so much. I mean, today we maybe take for granted that we have church leaders that can so readily travel to another country or deliver a presentation by satellite or by the internet. These opportunities were very rare for the church members outside of the Rocky Mountain area. And what do you think this would have meant for the members to have had a president of the church visiting them? Having a president of the church visit Mexico and later on having a president of the church visit other parts of Latin America, South America, was extremely significant for multiple reasons. One, it, of course, created a wonderful experience for the individuals who were there. But two, it helped to place the members of the church in Latin America in the consciousness of church leaders. The church in Mexico and the church in South and Central America grew slowly at first. But today, of course, the church has expanded dramatically throughout Latin America. And this dramatic growth comes about when you get to this period of the middle 20th century and you begin to have church leaders visiting these countries. The church is a rather latecomer a lot of times today because we know that Spanish is a significant language in the church and that there are many uh, Hispanic church members. We assume that the church and scripture translation and so forth occurred very, very early. And yet it's actually comparatively late. You know, we don't get a selections of the Book of Mormon in Mexican Spanish until 1875, and then we don't get a full Book of Mormon until the 1880s. And by the time you get into the middle of the 20th century, the church is still relatively small. When my father was a missionary in Central America, he was in Guatemala, for example. At the time he was there, there were fewer than 100 members of the church throughout the entire country. Today, the number is very large, and there are two temples in the two cities where they had branches at the time. Mexico, he was the district president in Mexico City. It's a temple city today, and there are numerous stakes there. So from the middle of the 20th century, when these events occurred to the present, there's been an explosion 
of the church throughout Latin America. And it came about in significant part because of church leaders' recognition of the leadership capabilities of Latin American, Mexican, and Central American and South American church members. Thank you so much for that, Rick. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in in the chapter that we haven't covered so far? From the very beginning of the Saints Project, I said to our team that the third volume in the series would be the one where the most learning occurs. Most members of the church feel as though they understand the Joseph Smith and Brigham Young periods of the church. Most people believe that they understand what will be in the fourth volume because that's the period in which they live. But the third volume contains a lot of information that's virtually unknown to most church members. So I encourage members of the church to read the whole Saints series, but particularly to focus on chapter three, which shows the transition from what they know of the earlier period to what they know today. Thank you, Rick, so much for joining us this week and sharing so many great insights and extra stories with us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. You're welcome. Best wishes to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.